He's kind of like the Joe Rogan of the hospitality industry right now. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hey, everybody. It's Will Slickers here, and there's just one thing I want to say before continuing on to this episode. Renew System Professionals are uniquely prepared during this unprecedented time to deep clean and disinfect your property according to the protocols set forth by the CDC. With 30 years of addressing the needs of the hospitality industry, they have experience in dealing with many situations including biological contaminants and they go above and beyond the scope of work that normal janitorial staff would perform. Their professionals are trained to perform a proactive cleanup. Renew Systems aims to be your partner during these times. As a small business with national and international presence, they strive to exceed any and all of your expectations. When this is all over with, society will be more critical than ever when it comes to cleanliness and sanitation. So together, we can ensure to wow them with floor-to-ceiling, pristine cleanliness and safety. Go ahead and check out Renew Systems at www.renewsystems.com. That's www.renewsystems.com. N-U-E-S-Y-S-T-E-M-S dot com. Now back to the episode. But I mean, that vulnerability, it starts there, right? Like, I don't know. I can't farm the apple trees or the blueberry plants or that greenhouse. But every time I'm here, I'm, I am so excited to learn more. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think, that's where... Um, it becomes really powerful. And that's where I think the storytelling really takes flight because, because it is always an evolution. It was with beer for us. It continues to be with beer and it will always be. We're manufacturing a product every day that then somebody is consuming that's part of an experience that we want them to come back and repeat as soon as they want to or as soon as they possibly can, right? Or share that story. It's the same with this. It's just one more manufactured kind of opportunity to say, hey, we actually produce this and this is how we did it. And you get there by being vulnerable, being aware of what you don't know and being willing to understand it. And I love that. Welcome to Slick Talk, the hospitality podcast where we discuss all things hospitality, hotels and business. You can find us online at slicktalkthepodcast.com and on every podcast listening platform. All right, welcome back to Slick Talk, the hospitality podcast. I'm a little giddy and excited. Not only am I on three, four, maybe five cups of coffee, but this has been an episode in the making for quite a long time. Um, I think for all of you listeners out there to get a little bit of a backstory, I have been obsessed with hotels and hospitality. And um, part of that led me to my journey in Cannon Beach, where I started working with Martin North. And then, of course, met Ryan, who is our guest today on the show. Ryan is the uh, CEO and owner of Martin North out in Cannon Beach, Oregon. And um, I'm just excited because this is a man who has just been a, a good example to look up to, who has been somebody I've admired throughout my journey and my growth in the career and just the overall industry. So I'm excited to have Ryan on the show and finally get some uh, get some of that hospitality passion 
in the in the show. So welcome, Ryan. Well, first off, thanks, Will. Uh, thanks for having me. And uh, I we've, this is a long time in the making. So uh, it's been fun to watch your journey and uh, see you as you expand your career in hospitality. And you know, we're we're all in this thing together. We all we all know why we do it. It's because we love people. And, uh, and, you know, that's exciting because we all kind of uh, bond between, between those thoughts. So, um, yeah, so you'll notice like my background today, a little bit, a little bit different, right? This yeah. is not a dropped in background. I'm actually uh, out at our farm, uh, Public Coast Farm today. Um, I had kind of an impromptu meeting that I needed to be at. So calling a variable here, setting up a little uh, farm chair and uh, going to have this meeting out here in the field. So. Uh, just super stoked to be here and uh, thanks for again for having me so of course yeah and that's a, the beauty of podcasting it can be done almost every anywhere including a nice farm out in Oregon uh, so <laughs> Ryan let's just I want to get into the meat of the bones um, you know of what you do who you are your background so if you want um, to paint a picture for everybody that's listening just where did you get started in the hospitality industry what is your your story your overall um origin of where you are you know like what got you to where you are today yeah so um i think there's there's two there's two parallel paths that i think are uh both very important and i'll start with mine which is what you're asking um so i grew up in southern california and uh the tourism hospitality mecca of palm desert um, so where I was growing up, you were either, uh, working at a country club or you were going to a country club. And, mm -hmm. um, I was uh, always, uh, working in a country club. So I was very, very blessed and fortunate. Um, my closest friend growing up, um, his name was Carrie Cosgrove and his, um, his dad was the, uh, exe the general manager of a very prestigious club in, in the Coachella Valley. And early on he you know i got introduced to what like a high level of hospitality really looked like in in action because he was the he was probably one of the premier club managers mm -hmm. maybe even in the united states uh, very sought after um very very prestigious location so it was very interesting because that wasn't the background so uh, my my parents uh, my dad lived in las vegas and he was in he was an auto wrecker and so um, early on when I would go to visit my dad, I got kind of dialed in with computers and started working with inventory systems and I would geek out on that stuff. But I was always a very creative guy. So it was very into art and uh, music. And so it was kind of always this uh, uh, quandary between creative and analytical, right? So I yeah. was in that space forever, never really sure where that was going to come out with hospitality, but that was the industry that I knew. So um, at many points, I, I was engaged in uh, school in Las Vegas and was in, uh, enrolled at UNLV um, in their hospitality tourism program and was working for a uh, restaurant company in Las Vegas and um, was working uh, as a bartender uh, and had worked my way up. I had started there. I'd come out, of, come out of college and I wanted to work in a brewery and I wanted to, this was Holy Cow Brewing, which was on the strip in Las Vegas. And I remember the manager, general manager, Mark, uh, I remember we're interviewing and I said, I said, I want to bartend here for you at this brewery. 
And he said, why would I hire you as a bartender? And it was just this really funny moment. I'm like, well, why wouldn't you? Like, I want to do it and I'm going to be your best bartender. And he's like, he's like, but I don't need a bartender. And I, and we're on the strip and like, he basically had his, his pick of a litter. Right. So, um, I said, well, I'll do whatever you want, but I just remember, I just want to be, I want to be a bartender here and I want to learn about this business. So he, um, he said, well, here's a rag. And he handed me a rag. This is like the greatest Ryan story for me. So hands me a rag and he says, you see that cow? And there was this giant cow for the holy cow. And it was like this big ceramic or whatever it was cow that was this decoration. It had big sunglasses on it and a halo for the holy cow. And he goes, clean it. <laughs> and that was, that was my introduction to working with Mark. And so I get up there and I'm cleaning and I'm like scrubbing this thing. And, and then from there, I mean, he hired me right on the spot. Um, I started, I was a busser. And again, I, you know, I'd had some college uh, education at that point, um, had had some uh, experience in hospitality at a higher level than, you know, even a busser at that point. Yeah. But it was like, I'm willing to do whatever to get my foot in the door for this opportunity. So I did that. And uh, within very, very short period of time, worked my way up, got my first bartending gig. And what I owe was my introduction to craft beer. So craft brewing then became a thing for me. And this was very early in the craft beer movement. So like 1993, I think we were the number two brewery in the state of Nevada. I think we were number 92 in the United States for craft breweries. I mean, it was really early on. And I remember, funny story about that, like we brewed an IPA, which everybody drinks now. Yeah. I remember we brewed an IPA in 1993 or 94, that was the only beer that I remember that we couldn't sell mm-hmm. because nobody would drink it because it was too bitter. Yeah. And that just tells you how crazy it changed and how fast it changed, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I would smell those beers being brewed there. And I just remember falling in love with craft beer. And I remember thinking someday, someday, maybe I can, maybe I can do that. Maybe, maybe, maybe it'll make, maybe it'll make sense for me to be involved in brewing. And, uh, that was always in the back of my mind. And, um, as I move forward through the rest of my career and my life, um, it was amazing when the other path, the other parallel combined, and that was, uh, my wife, Stephanie. Um, so her family, hospitality focused. Um, her dad had been in uh, hospitality and tourism quite a bit. He had worked in a restaurant. He had worked with a restaurant group uh, and hotel group called the Tapadera. And then he had owned a small bar in the Dallas, Oregon, which is where they were from. And he um, was working for this gentleman, George Drumheller. And George um, Steve would, Steve and Jan, and they took their little daughter, Stephanie, down to Cannon Beach on the weekends when they could get away. And they would stay at the Surf Sand Resort. And at the time, the Surf Sand Resort was owned by a gentleman. He owned a couple of other hotels along the coast. And uh, in typical Steve fashion, he was always negotiating. So, and this was long before I knew him, but uh, I can tell that he was probably always the same way. And he was down there for a weekend vacation and never stopped working and was negotiating a deal to buy the Surf Sand Resort. Wow. And he took it back to George Drumheller and offered it to George to, to buy the hotel. He's like, we should go down and buy this hotel and I'll run it. and We'll work down there. And 
George looked at me. He's like, nah, you know, I'm not really, he wasn't really keen on Cannon Beach. And uh, he goes, but you know what, Steve, you should do that. Well, Steve and Jan um, didn't have a lot and they took everything that they had and put it in to buy this hotel for the down payment. And then they had a balloon payment that was due. And what they didn't know when they signed the deal was that the hotel had already been sold two or three times previously. And the person selling it had taken it back each time because nobody could ever meet the balloon payment. So you get there, you see the summer, and then we all know what winters are like on the coast. And they would suffer, and then that blue payment would come due two years later, and there was no way for them to, to get through it. He would take back the property and then reinvest in it, get it back up, and then he would sell it again. So he had done that a couple of times prior and was planning to do it again probably for Jan and Steve. Lo and behold, we had one of those crazy winters where uh, there was no snow on the mountain, and the cars lined up in the parking lot and everybody had ski racks on their cars with nowhere to go. So they came to the beach instead. And the story that I always loved from my mother-in-law was that it was the last penny that they took in in that last day of April that made them be able to pay that final balloon payment to be able to move on. And that was the story of the surf sand. So that was where they started uh, was the surf sand resort 1979. And, uh, and then, Lo and behold, they moved forward. And again, Steve was the uh, very, very hospitable individual. And he realized one thing that was missing in Sleepy Cannon Beach at the time was consistency with the restaurants. So the restaurants would close for the winter and then they would reopen, you know, at spring and spring break, but nobody was consistent. So like if we had a guest come to the hotel, you couldn't say, yeah, you can go across the street to the Wayfair and guarantee that there was going to be somebody there at eight o'clock at night to mm -hmm. feed you. Mm -hmm. So lo and behold, the Wayfair had opened in 77 and uh, Steve uh, took the opportunity in 1983, Steve and Jan purchased the Wayfair restaurant and so that they could give a reliable experience for their hotel guests. So that was how they got back into the restaurant, bus restaurant business begrudgingly because Steve always was like, he didn't want to go back into restaurants, didn't want to go back, but that was his entree back in. Restaurant business is tough and we all know that. So um, he, uh, he was trying to avoid it, but just he couldn't do it if he wanted to provide a high level of service for his customers. And then over the years, um, things can continue to evolve for the Martin family. Um, so in 1983, they also purchased Haystack Gardens, which was a uh, floral garden shop right there in Midtown Cannon Beach. They bought that so that they could use the downstairs area as a as a open space for meetings, for small retreats, for people to pull people down. And uh, they moved some offices up top because they had outgrown their home office um, and they needed the surf sand and the Wayfair offices to be functioning for those properties. So they built a little office space. In that same time, they bought a hotel in Seaside. Uh, they bought over that same period of time, they bought the Viking Motel over after a couple of years. I think it was 85. Uh, the Viking Motel, which was next to the old major motel. Those are two uh, classic properties from Cannon Beach's, Cannon Beach's history. The Viking is the, is the setting now of the uh, Stepney Inn. Okay. And the major motel is now the setting of the Ocean Lodge, if that makes sense, if you remember those locations. So they bought the Viking Motel, and the idea was, 
one day they were going to build a space that was um, truly exemplary and um, satisfy people's uh, expectations in a way that they didn't even know they should be satisfied on the Oregon coast. And that ended up becoming the Stephanie Inn and, um, and dining room and all of the experiences and touches that have evolved from there over time. So over those years, there was other projects. Uh, we took on a bunch of properties in California and Washington as managers. Um, we, we owned a hotel and restaurant in the Dallas, Oregon, uh, Quality and Cousins Restaurant. And when in 2001, we made the decision to really focus on our backyard and Martin's family of properties um, stopped going so far and wide. And we really became very linearly focused um, on McCann Beach Market, our properties there, Surf Sand, Stephanie Inn, the dining room. And, um, and then we had one property that we managed in Seaside called the Inn of the Four Winds, cute little property. And we no longer manage that. Um, the owner is, uh, is doing something different with that property now. But it was a cute little property, but we had basically kept all of these kind of primary assets um, that we wanted to continue to manage. And then we dissolved everything else uh, from our ownership and management. So um, onward with that. And so we fast forward, uh, 2004, um, I'm now involved, so I moved here in 95. Sorry, I'm kind of jumping around, but in 95, I had moved to Cannon Beach. So I was there early on in the development of the Stephanie Inn. Interestingly for me, one thing that was fascinating about the Stephanie Inn was when I moved there in 95, it felt like it had been there forever, but it had only been there for two years. It was 1993, wow. but it already had that kind of iconic nature to it. And, um, and that was always really a special property, a very special experience, again, that people weren't expecting. And so, and I think that's why it has been so successful and uh, continues to be so successful today because we've never rested in that space. We're always developing and always adding uh, experiences that people want to come back or want to share um, and which keep people excited about that property. Um, but over the years, thing, a lot of things changed. So that sleepy little hotel that was the Surf Sand Resort Motel um, started out as a 33-room motel and over multiple uh, iterations evolved. And in 2005, we embarked on what ended up being a three-year project. And that was a complete overhaul of that property um, with the inclusion of multiple new rooms. And we took the room count up to 97 rooms from you know the earliest stage of 33 up to 97. Um, but it was, you know, I think it, it was at 83 when we made that final, that final transition. But it included rebuilding buildings that were only 20 years old because the coast takes its takes the life out of a lot of uh, yeah. a lot of buildings really quick. And uh, it's the only place where people will see stainless steel actually rust. And <laughs> it just doesn't, you know, it's just fascinating. So the coast is pretty brutal, uh, but yeah. So here we are today. We have uh, we have the Wayfair restaurant. Uh, again, we've owned that since 1983. We have the Surf Sand Resort. Uh, we have the Stephanie and Stephanie and Dining Room. And in 2004, we purchased what is called the Lumberyard Restaurant. Mm. Uh, was the Lumberyard Restaurant? We bought that with this vision of me finally fulfilling my dream of building a brewery. Um, I had this idea that we were gonna do what we did really well, which was we knew the restaurant so good, we were just gonna take that kind of idea, go down there, put it into downtown Cannon Beach, 
And then after five years, we'd be able to add a brewery component where the offices had been kind of housed. And then that didn't happen because the economics, the economy totally imploded um, in, you know, within that five year period. And nobody was interested in us building a brewery. And I certainly uh, didn't have the wherewithal to be able to pull it off. And, and then fast forward multiple years, um, it was 2014, I think it was, fall of 14. I finally told Stephanie, I'm like, we're not getting any younger. If we don't do this, we're never going to do it. So I sat down with Will LaRue, who was our corporate chef, and really he did a lot more than just uh, be a chef for us. He was, he's just kind of like culinary wizard, right? He's, um, uh, he's a beekeeper. He's, uh, he's done, he's like, raised tobacco, he has a farm, he's raised animals. I mean, the guy is like a jack of all trades, man. And it is really interesting because his palate is so phenomenal that I knew the correlations with brewing and uh, his cooking practices, in particular, in, in particular his baking uh, history, they're very similar. And consequently, when we opened, when he made the decision to join me to be the brewer of Public Coast with zero experience, we opened our beer or opened our brewery with good beer, really good beer. And people were astounded to find out that he wasn't a brewer. In fact, he went to the local uh, home brewers market. And I rem I'll never forget the story. It was so funny. I think he waited a little while to tell me this. And he's going to watch. He's going to kill me. But he had walked into the Astoria uh, home brewers market or whatever it was. And he was talking to the guy. He had never brewed beer ever. And he's talking to the guy about brewing and he said, um, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about learning how to do any, and the guy said to him, you know, there's a guy down in Cannon Beach who actually thinks he's gonna brew beer commercially. He's never brewed before. And he's talking about Will to Will. <laughs> and I just, I always thought that was so funny because it was so true. It was like, we had the, we had the resources for Will to train commercially in Las Vegas with the guys that I had worked with all those years before, which was really cool. So Will went down, lived in Las Vegas, learned how to brew beer. And then he came back to Oregon and he brewed those first batches with some support. So it wasn't like he was always on his own. He had that layer of training and education like in the field, which was phenomenal. And um, consequently, a year after we opened, we won the World Beer Cup Gold with our most iconic and probably one of the most challenging beers, one of the probably two most challenging beers that you could win a medal in, uh, which is the Blondale category. And that's kind of the Olympics of beer making and couldn't be more proud of the work that he's done. And, uh, and now we have Ben Christensen, who's our associate brewer and he's, uh, he's learning the trade. And, and I've known Ben since he was like four years old. And it's just, it's our family. And we continue to grow our family and things have changed a lot with the business. And we'll probably get into that we brought in a management company and we've, we've changed things. Things have definitely changed over the last couple of years, um, but it's all really good. And we're really excited where I'm sitting today is the next evolution, right? For us um, uh, with public coast farm and um, it's all coming very soon. So that's kind of the over overlay of those two parallel paths. Well, there's a, there's a lot of history and that's the coolest thing is like just seeing the buildup from your, like your one parallel, Vegas Brewery, Holy Cow Brewery, to Cannon Beach, Stephanie Inn, Surf Sand, Wayfair, leading into this, this creation of Public Coast. And I want to touch base on a few things that you said, just because 
one, a phrase that has stuck with me since the day I met you. We, I think it was one of our first conversations in your office or it was either in your office or it was at the surf sand. And you said, you're a, create, you're a creative analytic. And I resonated with that because I'm a very much so a numbers guy, data, revenue, strategy, but then also creative part, which we'll get into a little bit, but being creative with how you analyze these numbers and this information and, and put it out and overall grow and increase and of course train and develop and there's all these things that go into it. And the way you tell a story, that is what like always has hit like the nail on the head for me is just the way you tell a story. And um, just one for all the listeners, the Stephanie and iconic property. Um, it's just overall beautiful and the experiences there are insane. I only know because I've experienced it and seen it. But um, another thing really was the, uh, the way you tell a story with public coast. So I don't think a lot of people know this, but this is why I like, I've mentioned it a few times on the show. People have heard me probably say public coast brewery, public coast farms, because, you know, 363 miles of Oregon beach is all public. Um, and your brute, uh, your beer that you won the golden, the golden ale or the, sorry, not the golden ale. Um, 67 blonde. Yep. Yeah. 67 blonde. Blonde ale. Yes. Blonde ale. So it was all public coasts and all, all public beaches in 1967. And that's also the title of your beer. So I just, the way, the name of the restaurant, the brewery, to the beer, to the story it tells, it is super iconic. Like it's just, that is what for me, and I, we talked about this again too, was, is what defines a destination air. That's what I like to call them, where you create <laughs> a destination. Like obviously Cannon Beach is a very well sought place, at least in the Pacific Northwest. Um, I know when my time there, there was plenty of guests that came from all over the world just to come to the beach. Um, but I just think the overall, it's already a destination, but you created by your storytelling and your, your creative analytic type mindset, which is very unique to create another destination, to create that Martin North family destination of, of properties and experiences. And so for me, that is just like, I don't know, I, I geek out about this stuff. And so just hearing, you know, the chain of events, the story, the legacies, and of course a parallel like meetup of what it is today is just so the definition of hospitality to me. Like that is what, um, you know, this show is all about. This is what's inspired a lot of things in, in my career as well. And so you said, I'm going to, I'm going to quote you because this is what, uh, <laughs> this is a, something I just, I also love too. So not only a, a creative analytic, but we said we are wired to create remarkable experiences that are shared and anticipated. Now, I really want to dive in to what inspired you to say this. Obviously, you and I were talking about um, Public Coast Farms, which is to come. And so what inspired you to say this? And explain that mindset that you have, you know, being wired to create remarkable experiences. Because I think for a lot of listeners, they know that's what I believe in and the core like value of what we do as hoteliers or destinationaires or restaurateurs. That mindset is so incredibly important so i just kind of want to dive into your your thinking of that yeah so um as i kind of mentioned you know the company's major transition that happened was back in 
2001. So my late father-in-law, he had passed away. We started to look at the um, portfolio as it was standing and where we were managing and where we were spreading our resources. And it became very aware that we needed to focus in our backyard. And I didn't know it at the time, but that was the evolution of that kind of concept, right? Because everything that we started doing from that point forward was very, very focused on adding value to an experience that somebody had so they would want to come back and do it again tomorrow if they could, right? Or go home and share it so that somebody else would want to come and experience this beautiful thing. And that became this kind of uh, vertical integration of concepts and ideas, not just our own, but like, how do we integrate better with a community? How do we integrate better with the supply chain in the community? How do we source our products? How do we source our food for the menus? And it became so granular over the coming years that by the time Stephanie and I had purchased the company, um, the remaining balance from her mother, um, it was like very, very detailed on this is who we are here. And it was very specific all the way down to where we sourced our meat from and how far we, you know, 400 miles at the Stephanie Inn. That was our whole span for our entire menu. There's a couple of outliers there with like champagne because people expect French champagne. But we took it as far as to say, even our wine list was very targeted within a 400 mile area. And at the, at the Wayfair, it was a thousand miles. And at Public Coast, or which was at the time Lumberyard, it was like a thousand miles or 1500 miles, which gave us a little bit more east. And so you had access to a few different product lines, a little further out into the ocean. So you had access to a few different species of products, right? Mm -hmm. But it was very, very granular. And I think that was kind of where that started was um, at that time, without even realizing what we were doing, we were just really breaking down the experiences and saying, how can we partner with people to elevate these experiences? So working with local farmers became a really big thing for us. It became a really big thing for everybody. I mean, let's just keep it real. Yeah. Uh, you know, farm to table became its own kind of concept, but we were really ahead of that. I mean, I remember the mushroom forager uh, when I came to the Stephanie Inn for the first time ever back in 1995, some, the mushroom forager coming through the back door and showing the chef what they had just foraged and a transaction happening right then and there as he's preparing a meal for dinner that night. Wow. Like that's super high touch, high experience, high value. And that vertical integration of community and space um, is what we've really gone after. And, and so it became really clear as we were evolving, like with the surf sand, as the surf sand was developing out, it was, how do we do that more? How do we work with more local vendors? How do we work with more local experiences? Um, and then for our own self, so why are we not doing the brewery? We're, we're not doing a brewery, we're running a restaurant. We don't wanna be restaurateurs, we wanna be experience creators, right? So it's like, we're gonna go, we're gonna just sit here and continue to do this thing that we're not really like walking around like super proud of. And, and it's funny, just a little sidebar, uh, Lumberyard, the whole plan was to add a Lumberyard brewing to this great restaurant concept. Hmm. And because of how much time had passed, uh, Lumberyard Brewing Company is a great brewing company down in Arizona. Uh. So we couldn't do Lumberyard Brewing anymore. So, um, you know, good for them. 
uh, bad for us at that time. I was devastated until, until the brand kind of came out of the ashes of that, a public coast. I, the people that I've had the luxury and the privilege of working with creatively, um, especially, you know, like I think about that project, uh, the surf sand rebranding that we did a couple of years ago. Yeah. It's all the same core team of people. It's Marcy, it's Holly, it's Max and Megan with central office. These people are so incredibly inspiring. And just the way that the story got told, Kate Sokoloff, Kate was a, this incredible writer. She was able to put voice, her between her and Holly, put voice to our brand in a way that I had never even been through that process at that level. And it's super inspiring. And, and it's really, when you're in it, I mean, I, there's nothing like that. Um, I'm so lucky I got to work with those guys. But Public Coast, brewing beer, manufacturing product, the whole purpose of that was to add value to a Cannon Beach experience. They could, you, breweries, there's, there's a lot of breweries. I mean, there's a lot of incredible breweries in the state of Oregon. And we've had so many incredible relationships with these breweries as we were starting up. They were helping us out. It's a, very, um, it's a very integrated culture. And I love that about the brewing side of our business. Um, brewers are friends. They take care of each other. It's, they're not competitive. It's a completely different mindset than any other industry that I've been a part of. It's very collaborative. Um, and that makes it really exciting for a brewer uh, and for me, you know, to be able to see that. But all of that being said, we were brewing because we could get great beer and we can get great stories from other people. But it was like, but this is a thing that could differentiate us from everybody else. We've got these great hotel assets. And now we're telling a story about a product that we're producing just down the street mm -hmm. that is now in a glass for you to consume. Okay, wait a second. Now let's take our concept of how we do restaurants. And now we're going to source products. Okay, so now we're going to source honey for that honey red ale that we do. We're going to source it from a local, uh, a local beekeeper. Then it becomes like, what are other ingredients? Local rosemary and all these herbal kind of additions peppers different fruits and yeah it was just like it was fascinating and so you get will who gets it and then you get the brewing which and he's got that whole concept down so good with working with the regional markets and then and then it was like the evolution of that it was so easy for us to go gosh we should we should do something over the hill so the idea was this all started because of distribution public coast farms was born out of this desire to have an outlet to distribute product in Portland. So what was happening was, so we started brewing and we had enough people who were interested in our product so we get to sell it over in Portland, right? Mm -hmm. So we have this little van and we can load it up with seven or eight kegs of beer and Ben and Will would drive that little van over. It's an hour and a half into Portland. They'd go here, there and everywhere, back and forth across the city. Um, because we're just going to sell it wherever we can, and that's what you need to do. We're hungry, right? 13 hours later, they're delivering back home to Cannon Beach, an empty truck, and they're exhausted, and we've served eight accounts, right? Yeah. And maybe we've picked up a few empty kegs. And it was like, wait a second. There's a reason why trucks don't go back and forth empty. They don't deadhead. And so what can we do? You know what? There's a ton of vendors that we don't have access to on the coast. 
except through big box suppliers. And some of the big box suppliers don't have access to some of the small vendors that are in the Valley. And there's so many incredible farms. I mean, oh my goodness, Yale's Meadow, which is just down the street from Public Coast Farm. Unbelievable people, they produce unbelievable products. And they were one of the only little farmers that would, they would actually drive over to the coast because they were selling enough product to the Wayfair to make it worth their while and maybe a couple of other locations. But there's so many farms like that on this side of the hill that we don't have access to, not to mention other suppliers. So for instance, on the coast, we don't have access, there's nobody making, at least in volume, the ice cream for us, right? So we couldn't, I mean, you've got Tillamook. I mean, Tillamook's a great product, right? And I, I mean, I'm the first one to say Tillamook is an incredible company. It's an incredible product, it's in our backyard. It hits on so many marks, but it's not really a craft product. And um, they do have some craft kind of lines, um, which we have, you know, we've experienced and they're very nice. But for us, it was like, who can we work with? So we started working with Ruby Jewel. That was a great partnership for a long time. Um, and now we're and now we're working with Tillamook uh, for for now, and uh, and that's great. But that was a great example. You come over here, you have access to a vendor, and that you don't have access to on the coast. We stop by, we pick up the product. Now the truck's coming back full of product, not empty the way it was. Mm -hmm. And you're still only servicing seven or eight accounts because of the way it's set up. And then it was like, okay, what's the next step? And we needed storage. We need storage here. So we started looking in this area for storage capacity, cold storage, ice cream storage, or freezer storage. And then I'm having a conversation with my good friend, Keely O'Brien. And Keely says, why don't you just grow some hops, find a piece of property and grow some hops and have a little tasting room like a winery. So if you have 15 acres of hops, you should be able to do a tasting room. And I'm like, really? Okay, maybe we could do that. So not a farmer and was thinking we would lease some land and maybe even a farmer who would want to grow some hops and we could have a little tasting room and cold storage facility and that could become a distribution hub for us. So I started looking and that didn't go so well. Nobody was interested in uh, leasing me land and, uh, and then I kind of gave up on it. I gave, gave up on the idea and I was driving home one day from my son's soccer game in Portland and I'm coming down Highway 26, property that I've seen dozens of times over the years and contemplated how beautiful it was and uh, how unique it was. It's a, it used to belong to Ramblin' Rod and I'd heard that story and I'm driving by and I see a for sale sign out of the corner of my eye and I turned my car around and went back and did I really just see a for sale sign? Call the guy, how long has this been for sale? Almost 365 days and it's like, there's been no for sale sign. I drive by this all the time. And he goes, yeah, the owner didn't want to have a for sale sign out on the highway until I think it was like yesterday. Wow. And I'm like, so I said, we'll be there tomorrow to look at the property. I'm just really curious. And I came here with Dave Norstead, um, who worked with me for a number of years. Yeah. And we, I remember we went to the, the house and each building, each of us was like bouncing these ideas about we could do this and we could do this. And we can do this over here and we can do that. And it just kept getting like, the excitement was building. By the time we got to the last building on the site, which is this beautiful hangar that was built maybe four years ago or five years ago now, um, that was hardly used at all. It's this beautiful finished hangar, two restroom facilities. Uh, it's got about an 80 foot span that completely opens up with 
20 foot high ceilings. I can't wait for people to come and see this place. Unbelievable event space. Like you can see a concert or you can see music and you can see all. By the time we were sitting there and he, the guy had opened up these, these walls for us and we're looking out onto the farm. I'm like, I looked at Dave and I'm like, yeah. we got to do this. And Dave looked at me and he's like, if you don't do it, I might. <laughs> <laughs> so lo and behold, the next day uh, I convinced Stephanie. I'm like, I think we got to do this. And she's like, all right. <laughs> and she was totally game. And uh, we bought the farm. <laughs> and, and it's been a, it's been a project, but it's evolved. And that evolution is all tied to the same thing. How do we add value to what we do in Cannon Beach? Everything about this is about adding value to the experience. There's not, there's not many hotels. Um, I mean, I do know that there are some, but there's not many hotels that can say that they're sourcing from their own farm. We have a 40 acre farm here. We have a 5,000 square foot uh, state of the art growing facility uh, for vegetables and fruits year round. Um, we have not to mention uh, 10 acres of blueberries active. Right now we've got clover that's on, on the farm. Uh, we have a runway, uh, which I have not taken out yet. Um, until we have a tasting room, which we're going to be building this year. So we'll have a tasting room and a small farmhouse brewery that'll be on site. That's going to be very exciting. We just completed our cold storage facility. So we have about almost 2,000, almost 2,000 square feet of cold storage for berries and fruits and vegetables and another 500 square feet of frozen storage. So the goal here is zero loss off the farm. We are completely sustainable with power. So we have solar installed. We have a solar field that will be installed when we build the, the tasting room. The entire property will be completely off grid if it needs to be, which is very exciting. We're working on the water reclamation pond right now to reclaim all the water off of these structures to be able to use for irrigation purposes, um, which is really exciting. Um, it just continues to evolve. And in addition, we have, you know, right now we have five acres of apples. We're adding another five acres of apples. Um, it's just, it, you have to see it. I got to get you out here, Will. You're going to love it. I was say, yeah, the, that's what I love it. Like you, you just said too, you know, there's not many hotels that can be like telling the story of their own fruit of labor, I guess. Use, like no pun intended, but like legit, like they, you, you work at a hotel and I remember all the times just being like, oh yeah, we recommend this restaurant or, or this brewery or whatever because it's close, we've gone there ourselves, you know, like whatever, it's a personal recommendation, but to have that extra touch and say, hey, you know, let's say I'll just, at the Wayfair, for example, somebody tries a beer, where did you get this beer from? Like, where's this beer brewed? And it's actually right down the road, we brew it ourselves. It tells the story of the coast and the history. Now that opened up so many doors for me and that guest to connect in different ways as humans. And so, not now take that to a grander scale like you just did of 40 acres and you know 10 acres of blueberries and apples and all this other stuff that's going to be self-sustainable that just opens i don't know i just not only is it creative and innovative and just the way you know i think this industry should always be for all you know like we get i think we got so lost in the cookie cutter this is a hotel this is how all the rooms look like this is like the square building box that we've built and this is now 
one of the most, this has always been one of the most creative industries, but we put our own selves in our own box. This is a, an example of getting out of that box and getting creative and getting to the point of like, we are humans. And especially like in these times that we're in now with everything going on with COVID-19 and protests and everything, we want to connect with people. We want to be loved. We want to be heard. We want to be, you know, a part of a culture. We want to be a, you know, we want to be important. And this example that you guys are leading, um, that opens up that door so, so intensely that um, I don't, I think a lot of people overlook, not a lot of people, but I just, uh, yeah, I get a little passionate about this, but it's just, you know, it's just, it's something that, you know, you and I, I think I've connected on that level of destination there. You're creating something so unique um, into, to the aspect of, of what hospitality truly is. So I can't wait to go see it. Yeah. To be honest, I, been hearing about it for for years and uh so once the, the farm is fully you know even not fully i'd love to come anytime but just uh just the idea of what you know the mission and purpose is and how it's going to be communicated and the impact is, is so super unique so i give you guys kudos i just had a i just had a i just had a hospitality friend here just this morning um that i was meeting with and um we met out here a year ago and he was blown away with what has happened and what's transformed out here in just a year. Um, for me, it feels like it's, I've been out here for years, but we've, we've owned the property for just over a year and a half. Um, so um, we're in our second year now and it'll probably take a good another couple of years for this to totally build out. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, so it's a, it's a definite passion play. Um, and I'm really excited. We are weeks away now from, producing the vegetables out of the greenhouse grow house and when that happens um the stories that will be coming to life i mean it's just for for our staff for our guests um the experience that that creates is going to be very very special um so much care and, and i do think it's really important to share like um i'm not a farmer so like it's yeah. kind of the it's kind of our running joke right so like accidental farmer. i call myself an accidental farmer right yeah um this wasn't the intention the intention was that we had a uh we had a, a space for distribution and kind of this hub kind of concept um so we're not approaching this like we know how to do everything i have a wonderful farm manager and his family who live here on site um they oversee kind of all of the aspects so they kind of are me and Stephanie when we're not here right mm -hmm. so but but he's not a farmer. I mean he's not the blueberry farmer um, so we have a blueberry farmer that we contract with so the blueberries are taken care of by a, a specific farmer the apples are taken care of by a specific farmer the um, the greenhouse has a specific farmer we're gonna be installing hops that's gonna be a very specific farm group that will be managing those so each one of these is its own kind of outside group because that's what they do. Yeah. It's not what we do. And, you know, stay in your lane. And what I can do is we can vision this, we can, we can build it, and then it can be executed by the professionals so that we can tell the best stories and sell those products effectively. And I'm really excited for that. Really excited. No, that's the, that's the best part. I was, I think um, I was talking to a couple other people in the industry and just, talking about, you know, what does it mean to embody this, right? Um, 
we have the vision, but what does it take to really be a destination there? And this, you know, being able to create, seeing the gap that you can find a solution for, and then also executing. And I think you worded it out perfectly because, you know, stay in your lane and do what you do best. And that's telling stories and, and being able to provide what you can, but like having a farmer for each thing is so important because that's what they do. That's their, they wake up and they breathe, live and dream blueberries, you know, it's like that's, that's their life. And so why not let them take control and do what they do. And that itself, I think is just super keen is just executing on these ideas, being able to create this, you know, it's easy for a lot of people to talk the talk, but to walk the walk and then also talk as uh, as needed is is important. Um, I think it's I think I think a funny funny add to that is that you uh, there's something to be said. There's so much value if you recognize that you don't know and you step into that that gap. Yeah. There's so much value in there in that vulnerability in that space. And what's surprising to me through this whole process is the value that that brings to the other person, mm-hmm. right? Because I'm going to ask a question that is really probably pretty stupid sometimes about the blueberry plants, but they haven't answered that question maybe ever. And then the next question that they're not expecting is, but what would it take for me to do this? And they'll be look at me. I've had this happen so many times out here. Uh, I don't know well, I guess we could do that. And I guess you could build your own dehydration facility. And yes, I guess you could, you could build a pickling plant and you could try and have zero loss on the farm. Yeah, I guess. Like they don't even think about it. And then all of a sudden you see their creativity. Yeah. But I mean, that vulnerability, it starts there, right? Like, I don't know. I can't farm the apple trees or the blueberry plants or that greenhouse. But every time I'm here, I'm, I am so excited to learn more. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think, that's where um, it becomes really powerful. And that's where I think the storytelling really takes flight because, because it is always an evolution. It was with beer for us. It continues to be with beer and it will always be. We're manufacturing a product every day that then somebody is consuming that's part of an experience that we want them to come back and repeat as soon as they want to, or as soon as they possibly can, right? Or share that story. It's the same with this. It's just one more manufactured kind of opportunity to say, hey, we actually produce this, and this is how we did it. And you get there by being vulnerable, being aware of what you don't know, and being willing to understand it. And I love that. Yeah, and I was going to say, you just, uh, you and I both, uh, both been very uh, big Gary V fans. And uh, what you just said with, <laughs> Gary. <laughs> no, Gary v, uh, with, with that is that it comes with a lot of self-awareness. And um, I think for me and my own personal growth and just in the industry itself is becoming self-aware. You know, there are so many things that like maybe some insecurities or challenges or anything that I wasn't fully aware of like I knew in the back of my head but they kind of got brought to light and you know I've talked about this but like just the overall self-awareness and like you said being putting yourself in that vulnerable spot when you do see that gap um, it opens up not just like the ability to storytell like you guys get to do with your guests and your staff but it opens up that possibility to grow and then of course it has impact and value and so I think that's where a lot of I don't know hospitality in itself is just such a unique 
thing to think about. And I get this question all the time. I'm pretty sure maybe you do too in some aspects, but um, you know, people are like, how can you run a podcast based on hotels and restaurants and like vacation mm-hmm. rentals? Like, how do you have, how do you not run out of stuff to talk about? And I tell them, I was like, you would be surprised because there are so many things that go into what we do and to what the industry is. Um, and of course, look in the last five years, there, there's so much growth. There's been so much popping off and changing and, and, and innovation that has happened. For example, a brewery and a farm and all these things on the coast. Like it's just, it's so extensive. And, and then of course you bring it down to the personal level, the leadership, the, the value, the realness of like our mission and purpose of connecting and building experiences. And like, I, I don't know. I think there's a lot to say about first impressions and then also not only first impressions, but the mark and the memories after that, that first impression, like being able to tell my kids in 20, 30 years, like, yeah, Cannon Beach was a place that I got started. That's where the podcast was born, or that is where I found my deep passion, or like just anything like that, that opens up. It's so extensive, so extensive. And I know we kind of got lost in the sauce and talking about, uh, you know, self-improvement and awareness, but I just think that <laughs> overall it goes into to everything that we're talking about. And um, so I want to leave it. It, it, it totally there. does, Will. It does. I mean, yeah. it's all interrelated, man. So. Yeah. Well, and I, so this kind of leads into where I wanted to, to get in with you a little bit more too, is how can hoteliers or destinationaires um, really embody, and, and sorry, excuse me, how can hoteliers and destinationaires fully embody and apply this mindset and leadership to style to their team, their guests, you know, alike, especially in these times of COVID-19, this is such a, um, I think the word that we've been all saying is uncertain uncertainty of when things will go back to normal if they go back to normal um you know all these other things and i think taking what you've learned and and kind of the kind of everything we just talked about is so deep and so important but i just kind of want to see what do you think people can get from this during this time yeah so obviously heavy heavy days man i mean basketball months have been uh unbelievable as we've been going through it and um it's been hard to it's been hard to lift your gaze to look ahead because mm-hmm. the uncertainty of every day has been so hard and that's that's my take me being transparent with you like it it was it was extremely unnerving and it continues to be unnerving um not as much as we're opening up and things are kind of loosening up but yeah it is still unnerving because the there isn't certainty on the horizon there isn't like a metric that we're trying to hit like it was when it started right 14 days it was 30 days to flatten this curve we did all that and it was never enough it's like it keeps changing and that uncertainty is causing a lot of craziness in a lot of people yeah um and i think it's scary to me frankly because of the uncertainty continuing and you know Unemployment benefits only go for so long. And these bonus unemployment benefits um, that are extended through the end of July, those aren't, I I, I can't imagine those are renewed, but not all of these jobs are coming back. And that's going to be, if we think now is scary, imagine it with 
you know, 10 million people that don't have jobs, yeah. um, that's going to be pretty scary. So, um, so, you know, obviously I'm, I'm optimistic for all of this. This is all very good. And I think this is, it's going to be wonderful for us to storytell. Um, but I think that, um, I think the biggest thing, and this isn't this, you're going to, you've heard this so many times because of who, the things that you listen to and the things that you, you experience, but the biggest thing that is so important right now is empathy. It really is empathy, man. Um, it's being empathetic to your, your staff members, uh, understanding where they're at. There's, there's fear. I mean, people are, people are scared and that's being propagated every day. And frankly, that fear, it's incumbent on us as leaders to find ways to, 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 to help them uh, feel less of that. And you do that by acknowledging it and being empathetic to their position and where they're at. Sometimes even when it doesn't necessarily align with where you're at personally. Um, but I think empathy is probably the biggest thing, man. And just that, that awareness for your guests. Um, so, but it starts with your employees. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really hard. It's really hard right now. Our industry is being brutalized for so many reasons. Um, I mean, rest, when you talk about restaurants, the restaurant industry, this is an unbelievable moment in time for an industry that is built on passion, built on passion, because anybody who owns a restaurant will be the first one to tell you that it's not built on profits. 100%. Right? Yep. So it is 100% passion. And these passionate people who care so much about the product that they're putting in front of you and the people that work for them, they're, it's under attack. And, it's, it's, and so many of them are, are going to be challenged to open their doors again. And that's really, really sad to see as somebody who loves so much of the culinary structure of like Portland in particular. Um, and a lot of them will come back with time and I'm excited for that. But it's going to be, it's going to be a bit of time, especially now with what's happening, right? But, um, but I think that the hotel side, it's really hard to connect with people behind a mask. Like I experienced this at a hotel down in Southern California a couple of weeks ago um, that had opened up and my family was all sequestered down there and I was here, we join up. My experience was that at the end of it, I wasn't sure what it was until I, and then it hit me. I can never connect with anybody because I can never feel genuine care, empathy, warmth, because I can never see a smile. And no matter how much we smile with our eyes, there's so much more to body language and that we, that we take for granted all the time. Our business is the one business that this will impact more than anybody else. If you can't connect with people in a, in a way that is memorable and makes their heart feel warm and cozy and safe, then they are a room's a room's a room, a hotel is a hotel, and at the end of the day, it becomes a value proposition. And that isn't the space that we've ever played in. I don't, I'm not in the value proposition hotel space, so we're in an experience space. And I do know now more than ever, it is truly about, you have to be able to express that level of empathy to somebody. And you do that through, through the, uh, through the emotional connection that you have with somebody. Yeah. It is virtually impossible right now 
to achieve that. I mean, I watched it firsthand. I've heard it firsthand. We have the fortune of having a lot of repeat guests. So they know us. Yeah. Um, so they, they, they know, they know what's happening underneath the, underneath the mask. But I do, I do think the industry as a whole, this is going to take its toll on people's experiences. Um, and I just, I'm really hopeful, you know, that we get through the other side safely, first and foremost, for everybody. And then that we're able to salvage our sense of empathy for others and how they feel. Because without that, you know, our industry uh, will be beat up for a long time. It's, I want to say it's poetic, but it's not really poetic. It's sadly poetic, but we're, you know, able to break down barriers in so many ways in our industry um, with, with people and walls that we have put up ourselves. And then to now literally have barriers in front of us that we now see. Um, as humans, we obviously all go through our own journeys and have either issues with trust or confidence or just anything like that. And now you're putting legit plexiglass windows in front of the check-in desk and masks and, and even gloves. Like, yes, this is all for the safety of everybody involved, every stakeholder. But now I think our challenge as an industry is going to be not only are we going to have to break down barriers emotionally and humanly, but now it's physical. It's a legit barrier in front of us that we are going to have to work even harder to get to those internal ones that, um, not that like we're all here to be counselors for anybody or anything, but like, like you said, empathy yeah. is so huge. Um, and just having friendship. I still have, no. go ahead. Oh, no, no, no. Finish, finish, I, say, I, I still have, you know, guests that I, I've connected with five years ago that I talked to on a weekly, monthly, yearly basis, whatever you name it. Um, and it's not like because we connected on a, an emotional, I, you know, crying, sappy, like way. It was just like, we had fun. You get to have fun and you get to bond yeah. with just certain little things, whether, and what opens that door up is, is body language and inflexation on tone of voice and how you make eye contact or lack of eye contact. And, and maybe if it's just putting up, you know, arm out to say, Hey, I'm, I'm here for you. If you need it, um, you know, that type of thing. And so I, that's pretty much all I was going to say is just that, that part that we have now challenged our challenge with, you know, with COVID-19 um, and it plays in so much, like as much as this is a hard topic, I think for everybody right now, but with the protests going on, like this is what we need more than ever is empathy and, and to really just say, Hey, I love you. I appreciate you, whatever it is um, in order. And now there's barriers, you know, it, it's going to be hard. It's going to be a real hard challenge, but again, what you've seen from your career and from other, you know, people in this space, um, we're very resilient. We're a very resilient industry. Um, yes, a lot of people are probably going to close their doors, but at the end of the day, the ones that stay open are the ones that are probably going to be the ones that adapted to the, the empathy and the overcoming of, of barriers that we're having in place now. Yeah, I, um, you know, I, I got idea. I, I read a book or it was recommended to me to read a book a handful of years ago about the love languages. Mm, it's yeah. Super cheesy, no, yeah. not self-help. I'm not going into that space with you, yeah, but yeah. Um, it was interesting because my, my, my language of how I communicate and how I love is through touch, man. Yeah. And I'm a big hugger. So yeah. like everybody in my work family, personal family, it's like, 
it's always high touch, right? Yeah. Always a hug. It's always, man, you know, like I just, I just need to like grab you by the shoulders and just look at you, right? It's like, and there's that, that sense of well-being that comes for me from that, which is completely void right now, right? Yeah. Like you can't have that. And that is such a, you know, like I think our culture, uh, and I think we're getting a little heady here, but the culture for us in America, which I think is such a, an unbelievable, and I don't think it's this way everywhere, yeah. that handshake, you know, that looking in the eye and the handshake, and it's just that connection yep. through touch and through uh, visual cues, right? Such an important part here. I know in Asia, they practice social distancing to a certain degree for a long time um, for lots of reasons. Right. And so it's different culturally, it's different, but here, and I think I, for me personally, that's been the hardest part is that I look at somebody and somebody who I was able to hug last month and just say, Hey man, I just really am happy to see you Mm -hmm. and great to see you or, you know, how's everything going in your life? And it just is that reminder that they're not alone. Um, and maybe it's just me. Maybe maybe they didn't even want that in the first place, probably. <laughs> Who knows? But I think I think there's a certain part of that that is happening. But it's like, you can't do that today. Yeah. You just you can't do that. And I and I see that I see on certain people's faces, it's just like they just need some reassurance. And the only way I can reassure somebody is to like put my hand on their shoulder and just reassure them and look at them and you can't you can't be in that space right now yeah i'm hopeful that we get back there we don't forget that that is a good thing that people need to be connected to and i mean i hope we can get back there soon very soon because i think there's a lot of people who are like me who really need that and they they might not even realize that's what's missing but i think it's missing for a lot of people yeah I agree. And I'll make a comment just because I, I know I, I can without getting backlashed on it. But uh, like my, my army buddies, I'm on, on COVID missions with um, a couple of us have gotten pretty close. You know, you spend, spend some time um, away from your family and friends and normal day-to-day stuff like doing the podcast and my other business I've had to put on hold, uh, not on hold, but it's more now a side thing because I've been called to doing a different thing. Um, but we, I think the, the ones of us that have gotten close, um, you know, we've, I think we had that moment. Like I have my buddy Garcia, I gave him a big hug and I was like, bro, it's so good to see you. It's been so long. And I know we're probably not supposed to hug right now. We got masks on and we're all, you know, like super PPD, you know, up, but, um, it's just, it, it's like, dang, this is, you know, it's, you've, I think take it for granted in a lot of ways. Cause I'm, I'm the same way. I'm a touch person. Um, words and affirmation and all that other stuff, but touch is a part of that. And just having that hug, like that one time, was like, I know it's a bro moment, but it was like, dang, ah, this is like, can we get back to this? Yeah. Can we get back to the simple things that we took, you know, I guess not oversaw, but just didn't really realize were were key and important in our life. So I'm in, the, I'm the same boat. I hope we get through it yeah. soon, 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 soon. Well, uh, you know what you just said reminded me, you just reminded me of something I want to say, and I yeah. want to say it on the podcast. Thank you for every, thank you for what you're doing. I mean, your work with the, the guard going in, helping the way that you do, um, really appreciate uh, your sacrifice too. Um, I know you've been, uh, you've been helping with this the COVID testing and um, 
and there's just so many people who have given so much in this moment and uh i don't want to forget that so thank you for what you do no of course thank you for your support it's uh it's interesting you know we we're uh it's it's like the secret society gets called up you know and we leave our day-to-day civilian jobs and and then go to do this thing that we yeah. train one, once a month for so it's it's unique it's cool to see the people that come from it like all the backgrounds of everybody and again this comes into the hospitality side of of me and of course you uh, is that yeah. it's like you get to see some interesting people and interesting stories that just and then everybody just embodies it and it's just like hey we have so many differences different backgrounds lives everything but here yeah. we are and it's it's pretty cool it's a cool thing to be a part of so again thank you for just supporting that just because at, in the hospitality aspect it 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 all connects in, in my eyes, at least. <laughs> but um, agreed, agreed. Yeah, I was gonna say. So I guess more moving into the conclusion of this episode. Uh, like I said, it's been something that has been in the works for a long time. Um, I'm glad. Like this episode really has no topic other than to geek out about storytelling and becoming a destination there and all the other like cool things that we love, you know, to talk about and do. But I guess any final thoughts or um, you know information or just anything that you want to put out there for the, the listeners of, of Slick Talk and, uh, you know, to continue on while they're listening? No, I think, you, you know, we, uh, we, could, uh, we could do this again tomorrow probably and have a whole other uh, series of conversations about different things. So yeah, um, anytime, you want to, anytime you want to do it again, let's do it again because it's a lot of fun. I've never done this before, so, uh, but really fun to get together with you and I do appreciate it and we're, we are excited for the things that we have going on. If you're based in Portland or if you're based in Washington um, and you get an opportunity to see this, um, highly, you know, I'm really looking forward to you being able to experience um, what we do with Martin's properties. Um, yeah. High, just a really, really unique experience. And I'm really excited for how this new piece and new chapter kind of uh, accentuates uh, what's already a very special experience. I agree. And for everyone listening, I will include everything that we've talked about. Um, uh, Sir Sam Resort, Stephanie Ann, Wayfair, Public Coast Brewery, Public Coast Farms. I'll include everything in the show notes. Um, that way you guys are able to visualize. I'm a visual person as well. So I'll also be putting on socials, Instagram, Facebook, you name it. Um, just so that way you guys can picture and actually see the experiences and stories that, uh, that we've been talking about. But I just want to say thank you again, Ryan, for being on the show. For all those who are listening, check out martinnorth.team and you can find out all the information there. And then, of course, yeah, have a heyday right there. Boom. Public coast. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, we, uh, we're super thankful just for, for the experience and the opportunity. I'm grateful for you. Thank you, Will. Thank you so much for listening. We love your support and want to provide the best we can to all our listeners. So please find us online, social media, and on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and Google Podcast. What's up, everybody? If you've gotten this far into the episode of Slick Talk, the Hospitality Podcast, then you are amazing. And thank you so much for tuning in. We want to send you two places really quickly. If you can, check out the show notes and click the hospitality.fm link. Check out all of our other shows on the podcast network. And don't forget, if you have someone that you want to hear on the podcast, then fill out the guest fill out form so that way we can get them on the show. 
Thank you so much for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy another episode of Slick Talk, the hospitality podcast.